0: Good morning, church. Good morning. It's good to be here on Christmas Eve, isn't it? One thing better to be if it's, if it's Christmas morning. Because as Christians, I mean, what's better than celebrating Jesus, right? I mean, I know we like our traditions, but this is a pretty good tradition, huh? We gather because we've been redeemed. So if you're new here this morning, as it's already been said, you're, you're welcome here. Uh, we realize that Christmas and Easter are two distinctly religious holidays. Our world hates to admit that. But it is, we're celebrating a person called Jesus who was born, and that's why we celebrate Christmas, and he rose from the dead. It's why we celebrate Easter. Um, and so if you're just kind of inclined to gather with a church on Christmas and Easter, uh, we understand, and we'd encourage you just to keep coming. Uh, because this God and Savior that we celebrate at Christmas is worth serving and worshiping all the time. Uh, and the body of Christ is a great place to be grounded in worshiping and serving Jesus. And so thank you for being here this morning. Uh, it is a true joy to gather to worship our King. Because that's who he is. We're not worshiping a baby in a manger. We're worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. His name is Jesus. Jesus. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter two this morning. As Daniel already read for us, uh, we're going to be in Luke two verses eight through 20. As you turn there, life is full of significant questions. Maybe you're in a period of questioning right now. We just went through the questioning of, should we sell a house and buy a house? It's a lot. It's a big deal. If you're bought and sold a house, you kind of wonder like, is this going to ruin us financially? You know? Maybe some of you have been there. You've made what you thought were wise decisions ended up not being a good decision because the market crashed and you're like, oh wow, we just, we're stuck, right? So buying and selling a house could be a big decision. Maybe you're a young person and you're thinking about, should I go to college or not? If I go to college, where should I go to college? You know, that could determine my career in the future. It could determine who I marry potentially big life decisions wrapped up in going to school or maybe for, maybe for some of you, it's just, Should I, should I get married? Should I not get married? I was talking to a brother earlier this week and he just said, marriages fall apart. And I get it, right? They fall apart. Apart from Jesus and his grace, I'm not very lovely. I'm going to destroy my marriage apart from Jesus. So maybe I shouldn't get married. And so these major decisions that face us all the time and life is full of these significant questions. And yet there's one question that haunts mankind It is the question that drives every religious system on the face of the planet. It's the question that causes humanity to be terrified of death. As I mentioned last week, talking to brother Doug, he had a friend who passed away and we don't even talk about funerals anymore. We talk about celebrations of life because we're terrified of death. We don't know what to do with death. This question that, that, that just wrecks the planet, if you will is how can I be at peace with God? How can I be at peace with God? That's what everybody really wants to know deep down inside. I want peace. So for some people, they chase peace through materialism. If I just get that status, I'll be okay. I'll be at peace. Life will be calm. And and it looks like the, the God of materialism. For others, it's, I'm gonna be the most religiously devout person. I'm gonna be sincere and genuine. And I'll be at peace with God. Have you met people that are more religious than you, but worshiping false gods? I mean, they, they go to church every day. Maybe they do their sacrifices and penance and hail Marys and whatever system they're in, they do it. And it's like, I will have peace with God. I'm going to do it. I'm going to get there on my own. How can we have peace with God? And really the story of Christmas answers this daunting question how can we have peace with God? And that's, I think the heart of Luke two. So let's read it again together. I know we've already read it once, but it's worth reading again. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That shall be for all people for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace with those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured these things up in her heart, pondering them. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told to them. Father in heaven, would you open our eyes this morning? Would you draw us in once again? Father, for some of us, this is the umpteen thousandth time we've heard your word proclaimed. Oh, may it not be boring this morning. May we not have this ho-hum mentality as we approach the scriptures, but might we be drawn in by the very glory of God revealed in the word. And would we once again come away in awe of you and father, for those here this morning that may not know you, would you open their eyes like you opened the shepherds in this passage and burst on the scene and may they know Christ this morning. So father, do a work we pray through the power of your word you have promised to bless it like rain that falls from heaven. Oh, would you work this morning, we pray. And in Christ's name, amen. This morning, I think the, the, the big idea, the main point that I think God wants us to grab a hold of this morning is this. Because the Savior has been born, peace with God is possible. Because the Savior has been born, peace with God is possible. So let's jump into this. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Here we have... Something that as you're reading through the Bible, it, you may just skip over it. We're so accustomed to shepherds. You know, it's just like they show up on your mantle for a month at Christmas. You know, they've got these little funny stick things with a hook. You don't know why they carry it, but they do. They're wearing long dress things. We're just like, yeah, whatever. Shepherds Christmas is kind of like, you know, a chicken and an egg. Well, let's think about it for a minute. We have here what I believe is an extremely ordinary audience. Look at this verse and this, and in the same region, the region of Bethlehem, that's the first seven verses of Luke two in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock. What we have here in the 21st century America, we've romanticized shepherds. We've, we've made them these cute little figurines that you buy at the Christian bookstore. We've made them kind of like, Ooh, these special guys that lived out in the field with cuddly little sheep actually the shepherds were were kind of the lowest class of society if if you're if you're familiar with indian culture they have a caste system and there are castes that you would like to be a part of and castes you don't want to be a part of the shepherds would be a caste system you don't want to be a part of they were the low end of civilization if you will they were the guys who were poorer than poor they lived out with their animals 24/7 365 they The people that robbed you on your way to and fro on the road, as you read the scriptures, you hear about robbers and thieves. These were these guys. They were not nobility. Um, Actually, it reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it talks about how there are those who are called and they aren't noble. They aren't smart. They aren't wise. They aren't of good report, he says. But God uses the weak things of this world to what? Shame the mighty, confound the mighty. That's the shepherds, okay? These are ordinary people living ordinary lives, not seeking after God. They weren't waiting every night for an angel to appear. Come on, God. Maybe it'll be this evening. They're just doing their thing like they've done For year after year after year, caring for sheep. But Jesus, his birth announcement is given, particularly to these men. I think for a few reasons. Didn't Jesus say things like, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Like he went after the, the broken of society. He said, come to me, I'll care for you. Didn't Jesus say, I came to call, not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Not the people who were religious do-gooders, who had it all together, who had all the world had to offer. He came just for these for lowly people. And if you look at the ministry of Jesus, you'll be struck time and time again with the people that he pursued that culture would not touch. Everything from the woman at the well, who his, shepherd, or his disciples were shocked he would even talk to her. And he didn't just talk, but he, he talked and he touched her, right? The woman with an issue of blood who grabbed his garment and nobody wanted her around. Nicodemus, who his society hated because he was a, he betrayed them. And he goes after Nicodemus. So at the moment of his birth, who does he go after? Shepherds, ordinary people. Why does that matter? Because I think it's really good news. He came after ordinary people because we're pretty ordinary. We don't believe in some idea, like certain religions that we're like the elite we're the special ones. We've arrived because we have a certain mental knowledge that we've gained. We're smarter. We're, this is what the Gnostics believe. We have a greater intellect. We're like, um, we're just sinners. Just real broken people, real ordinary people who mess up our lives all the time because we go our own way. And Jesus steps in and he calls us. He shows up on the scene. Like he shows up to the shepherds, ordinary people. And this morning, I hope that you see yourself as ordinary, because when you see yourself as ordinary, you are now ready to receive grace. When you see yourself as special, maybe so special that God's blessed to have you as his people think that, I mean, God, you're, you're really, you know what? You're blessed that I'm yours. I mean, I'm going to do great things for you. That's not the heart here in Luke two. It is ordinary people, an ordinary audience. And as we dive into this passage, don't forget that the shepherds were, it wasn't an accident God chose to reveal himself, right? That night, he could have gone to the nobility of Bethlehem, but he went to people without a without a home, living in the field with their sheep. And he appeared to them and he made known the greatest announcement in the history of the world to ordinary people. So we have an ordinary audience, But the second thing we see, and really the most significant thing in this passage, is we have an extraordinary announcement. This is the most extraordinary announcement you could even dream up. This is one of those scenes that if you would want to drop yourself into a passage of the Bible to experience it, this might be in the top five. This would be one of those, I wish I was there when when all this went down. When the angels appeared, when the heavens were filled, when there's the singing of angelic beings, like if that was me, man, I'd believe kind of how we would see this passage, an extraordinary announcement. So let's break it down together. Verse nine, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. This angel has been pretty busy. Okay. He's gone to Mary. He's gone to Joseph, he's gone to Elizabeth, he's gone to Zechariah. I mean, this angel has been a part of the birth of Christ, the angel of the Lord appearing over and over and over to testify the veracity, truthfulness that the Messiah is coming. I mean, this is a pretty crazy story. We take it as just, yeah, of course Jesus was born, but you're talking about a virgin who gives birth. This is pretty crazy stuff. This is like what you'd see in the tabloid, and you'd walk by and say, What an idiot. And we believe it folks. We believe what the Jews say is foolishness, right? What what the world says, that's not possible. Even in Jesus's own day, they didn't believe it. What was the accusation? We weren't born of immorality like you. His own people didn't believe the account that we're reading here today. So, the angel would, would come over and over to various players in this, in this glorious puzzle and say, it's true. The Messiah has come. Everything you see and hear is true. But what accompanies the angel is where I want to take a moment to ponder this morning. The glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory of God, very simply put, is the visible awesomeness of God, the visible presence of God. All that God is summed up and you can see it on display, the glory of God. So don't be confused here. This isn't some mystic thing. This isn't something that shows up casually. This is something that in the scriptures, when the glory of God appears, it was all that God is appearing in a visible form that would literally blow you away. Let's look at this a few, in a few places. Moses on the mountain, Exodus 24, 16. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn back there. I want you to see these passages. Exodus 24 in verse 16. This is Moses, Mount Sinai, the people of Israel. They've watched the Red Sea, Red sea be parted, okay? That's a pretty cool thing. They're, they've watched the 10 plagues in Israel. That's pretty awe-inspiring, would you, would you believe? And then he gets to, verse, he gets to Exodus 24, And it says the glory of the Lord in verse 16, the glory of the Lord dwelt, it it resided on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud in verse 17. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in sight of the people of Israel. And do you remember what happened? The people said, "Uh uh-uh, Moses, we ain't going. You go. We're not getting close to that. It was a consuming fire. When the presence of God descended, hey, we can tolerate the Red Sea being parted. We can tolerate plague after plague. We can tolerate all these mighty works. But when the glory of God shows up, hey, Moses, your turn, you go. We're not getting close to that because the glory of God was that awesome. Exodus 16, go a few pages back in your Bible. We see the glory of God showing up at Sinai. We also see the glory of God showing up in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. These weren't just things that God used to lead his people like, well, it's the best idea I could come up with. No, this is the glory of God going before the people of God. Exodus 16, verse 10. And as soon as Aaron had spoken to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. It wasn't like, ah, oh, maybe we should follow that. Maybe we shouldn't. It was like, oh, God's glory showed up. We're going to follow it. We have no choice. We will follow him and the glory of God revealed in this cloud. And then flip over a few, a few chapter, a few books to second Chronicles chapter seven. Second Chronicles chapter seven. We, we, we talked last week about the glory of God in the temple, God dwelling with his people. Well, here we have Solomon dedicating the temple to the Lord. And the glory of God shows up in such a way that literally blew them away. Second Chronicles seven, beginning in verse one, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer. And by the way, if you want to read a great prayer, read second Chronicles six. As soon as he finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when all the people saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. when We talk about the glory of God. This isn't something that is just playing on Christian radio. This isn't something that you go to a concert and have a religious experience. This was something that when God showed up in the full disclosure of his glory, people were terrified. They literally would fall on their faces or run in fear. It was not a question of an emotional experience. It was all there went, wow we're in the presence of God. We don't belong here. Let's leave. Or like you see in, in second Chronicles, let's worship him. That's the glory of God. And it was dwelling with his people. But when you get to the book of Ezekiel, this is important. So don't think this is Christmas, pastor Justin, what are you doing? This is really important stuff. You get to Ezekiel chapter nine and in Ezekiel chapter nine, flip over there quick. After lamentations Ezekiel chapter nine. I believe it's verse three. This happens over and over in the book of Ezekiel. Now we're talking about the Holy of Holies. Remember second Chronicles chapter seven, the glory of God fills the temple, dwells in the Holy of Holies, the permanent residence of God with his people. A few hundred years later, you get to Ezekiel nine and listen to what it says. Verse three, now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub. The cherubs were the angels on top of the Ark of the Covenant where the glory of God dwelled. The, the glory goes up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. It goes to the door and it called to the man clothed in linen who had writing in case in his waist, one of the priests. That theme is repeated until, the, and it's saying the glory of God went from where it belonged in the Holy of Holies and it went up and it left in the book of Ezekiel. You see the glory of God departs from the people of Israel and brothers and sisters as best we can tell based on written revelation from God, the glory of God didn't show up for 700 years. God did not dwell with his people. Remember last week, God wanted to Emmanuel with his people. He wanted to dwell with them. the glory of God was, was key to that. He dwelt with his people. He didn't dwell with his people for 700 years. And then we get to Luke two. And these ordinary people out in the field with their sheep, an angel shows up and what happens? The glory of God comes back. The glory of God explodes before these ordinary men. And it was like, whoa, we've heard stories of this story. We've heard way back in the day, a thousand years ago when the glory of God came to the But now it's happening to us the glory of the Lord accompanied the birth of the Messiah because God was coming back to dwell with his people and look at what the shepherds did. This is just priceless. The grammar here literally says they feared a great fear. They wanted to die. They were so terrified. They were like, we're done like an Isaiah six moment, just fall over and die. Woe was me? I've seen the glory of God and I am scared to death, not figuratively, but literally I, they feared a great fear. I know he sang silent night, but this was not a silent night for the shepherds. This was the most horrifying night to date for these shepherds until the angel speaks. Because look at what the angel speaks. Look at the compassion of God. They're terrified. And in verse nine, he says the, I mean, out of the shoot, fear not. Don't be afraid. Isn't this just God's goodness? He doesn't leave them there he knows they're terrified. And he just says, don't be afraid. Just again, remind or we want to remind us as a church that when the glory of God truly is on display, people are afraid because of the sheer awesomeness of God. The shepherds were normal people who responded exactly how they should have responded, terrified. But let's look at what God does. So we have this announcement. That's massively impressive. And the shepherds, the shepherds, he's seeing the glory of God. But what does verse 10 do? Here we see a message of gospel joy. He says, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be to all people. This word for good news. Maybe you've heard the Greek word before. "euangelion." It's the word for proclaim the gospel. It's throughout the entire new Testament it was the word gospel and proclaim the gospel. It is the, here's the appearance of it. The first time in Luke proclaim the angels come proclaiming a gospel of good news, good news to all people. Interesting. He says, good news of great joy. I ask you this morning, has the good news of the gospel produced great joy in your life? If not, then you've missed the good news. I'm not saying that Christianity is a happy-go-lucky religion. I'm saying that if you know Jesus, there is a joy that cannot be taken. There is a joy that comes through Jesus alone. And so we've spent so much time already talking here at EGBC about the Christian faith not being a health, wealth, prosperity message. It's not about come to Jesus and all your problems go away. It is a message of great joy. See the difference? It is sustained, lasting, permanent joy. Look at Luke 15. Actually, Luke loves this phrase. Good news. And actually he loves the idea of great joy. They show up throughout the book. Luke 15, verse seven. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10 of the same chapter, Luke 15. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There is joy when mankind, us, sinful humanity, excuse me, is reconciled with the creator. The angels have joy. We have joy and God has joy. There is good news of great joy. And if you look at Luke 24, 52, the end of the book, after Jesus speaks with the disciples on the road to Emmaus and he tells them about himself from all the scriptures, what did the disciples do in Luke 24, 52? And they worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Jesus told them all about himself And they worshipped with joy. Exactly what the angel said would happen in Luke two ten. Here is good news of great joy. Now, brothers and sisters, I have to stop here. If I just just ask the question, is your life characterized by great joy? And you might respond with, "My life is hard, really hard." I get that. Life is hard. Life is full of heartache and trial. But sometimes I'm concerned because Christians, professing Christians, can be the most miserable people in the world. This pessimistic Debbie Downer outlook on life, just miserable and mopey, kind of the Eeyore syndrome. And I don't understand it because it's like, well, time out. Do you know the good news of great joy? Do you know the savior who died, who lived for you and died for you? I'm not talking about circumstantial happiness. I'm talking about sustained peace with your creator. And so there is great joy. Now, the thing that's so beautiful here is that we're gonna continue to suffer in this life. Problems caused by our sin, other people's sin, disease, because we live in a fallen world, we're gonna have pain. But in the midst of that, In the midst of that, we can say, I'm so thankful for the good news of great joy. That my soul is at rest with my God. And therefore I can worship him. I can love him. Oh, I might weep and I might weep great, weep greatly, but there is a joy that cannot be taken because we have received the good news of great joy. This gospel joy, not only is it good news, but it is for all people. This is what I believe is the ultimate fulfillment of the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. He said to Abraham, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That was the promise to Abraham. Well, who is the ultimate seed of Abraham? Jesus. And here we see that there's good news of gospel joy will be for all the people. You know, the good news has never been ethnocentric. God chose a people called the Israelites. But if you read the book of Leviticus, he made plenty of room for the nations. He had all these rules of, hey, Jews, you live this way. But if a foreigner comes, here's how they become one of the people of God. Why did God do that? Because he's always been about bringing in the nations. Why did Jonah, I'm excited one day to preach Jonah here, but why did Jonah get so ticked at God? It wasn't what Veggie Taylor says. Don't get your theology from there, okay? It was that he, you get to Jonah 4, and he says, God, I knew you were full of steadfast love. I knew you'd save the Ninevites, and I hate them. I mean, that was the heart of God. I'm going to save people who the world hates. And Jonah knew it, and he ran hardcore from God because God wanted to bring people's all nations to himself. Well, here we get to Luke two and we see the heart of God. just becoming more and more clear in this way. This is not a ethnocentric Jewish religion. It's an all nations, all nations and all peoples can receive the good news of great joy. Do you know that if if you took this congregation and dropped us in to somewhere in Southeast Asia, our message wouldn't change. It'd be the same. Jesus died for sinners like us. And we need to turn to him in repentance and faith to be saved. This isn't an American message. This isn't a Elk message, right? This is a global message of the gospel. Good news. Great joy to all peoples. This message is one of gospel joy that must be proclaimed. Well, look at what he says. He goes on. He elaborates on this good news for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior, who is Christ the Lord. Here we see the message of a sovereign savior, the fulfillment of prophecy to you is born this day in the city of David. Psalm 89, three and four, the lion of David, Micah five, two, the little town of Bethlehem. You will know the King will come from you. Do you know what's interesting? Look at the very first few words of verse 11 in your Bible. It literally translates, For you is born. This is a direct address from God to the shepherds. For you is born today a Savior. Do you get the personal nature of the gospel here? He actually is God speaking through the angel to the shepherds. He says, Hey guys, you need a savior. Guess what? He's born today. And so we read this thousands of years later and you can put your name in this context to you. For you is born a savior. His name is Jesus. His name is Christ the Lord. This is not some out there savior. This is not a, if you need him. This is a, he was born for you and the shepherds absolutely got it. The promised one, he says to you in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. It's interesting that he, he talks about a savior. Do you know why? Have you ever thought about why would he use the word savior? Maybe because we need one. I mean, these are the simple things that when you read your Bible, you just read over. But why would he say, for to you in Bethlehem is a savior? Because it screams what we desperately need. It screams you can't save yourself. I mean, have have you been a part of a religious system maybe before you came to Jesus that said essentially this? Do all the good things you need to do. And when you can't do enough, Jesus helps you out. That's the message of so many pseudo Christian religions go to church, be good, take communion, do your prayers, do whatever, be, be worthy of the temple, whatever that religion teaches. Oh, and by the way, when you, when you're not quite good enough, the savior will step in and help you. That's not the message of the cross. It is, Hey, you know what? You can do nothing righteous. You're not basically good. And you need a savior. His name is Jesus. Jesus. And that should just cause us to to pause and worship him this this week. A savior was born. Not just a generic, any old savior, but a savior that I desperately needed. And his name is Jesus. So the promised one, the savior who is Christ. The word Christ is actually, not to go into crazy detail, but Christ and Messiah are the same thing in different languages. Christ and Messiah. Messiah means the promised one. So he says the Savior who is the promised one the promised one who has been throughout the entire old testament remember last week genesis 3:15 one would come and crush the head of the serpent the first promise of the gospel here's the promised one genesis 12 the promised one here's the promised one you just trace promised one throughout the entire old testament and he says here the promised one has been born the one you've been waiting for for thousands of years he's come he's the savior He's the Christ. These aren't just names. Christ is not the last name of Jesus. Christ is a descriptor of He was the promised one, whom God would send. And He is the Lord. I love this. Who is Christ the Lord? This is a combination of titles that's very unique. Only six times in the entire New Testament does Savior, Christ, and Lord show up in a single verse. Interestingly enough, in the Old Testament, Yahweh, the covenant name for God was translated Lord, capital L-O-R-D in your Bible. The word to name Adonai was sovereign ruler overall, translated capital L, little O-R-D in your Bible. And here he says, Jesus is Christ the Lord. And most theologians agree. He says he is Yahweh Adonai. In the Old Testament mind, he was both. He was the God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush and said, I am. And he was the sovereign ruler overall of, of uh, Psalm two, my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, he is Yahweh Adonai. He's Christ the Lord. And yet again, brothers and sisters, we must be so committed to this because we don't live in a society that believes Jesus is God, very God. He is the eternal God. We live in a society that if they affirm Jesus deity at all, they'll say, well, I mean, he was born a man lived a really good life and he, you know, he achieved a certain measure of deity because of his goodness. I mean, Pew research is showing that the numbers are just falling at a staggering rate of people that are affirming Jesus being God, Jesus being virgin born. These aren't accepted truths anymore. And we must be so committed when somebody tries to say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not really sure he's God. You don't just go, okay, that's fine. No, 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 time out, time out. If you don't believe Jesus is God, we, we don't believe the same thing. Like there's, there's no ability for us to, to talk about our faith together without me telling you that you need to be saved because Jesus is God. And that's this statement. A savior tells you what he came to do. Christ tells you he was prophesied about for thousands of years. And Lord says he is God, very God. A savior who is Christ. The Lord, there's a lot in that verse, isn't there? I bring you good news of great joy unto you today or for you today is born a savior who's Christ the Lord. And then the compassion of God kicks in in verse 12. He says, this will be a sign. God doesn't need to give him a sign. I mean, come on, he's God. He can, he's like, come on, just believe it. Just, Just take my word for it. He says, no, I'm gonna give you a sign. And this was very typical of God in the old Testament. He appears to people. They freak out. He comforts them. He gives them a message. And then he gives them a sign to confirm the word. It's exactly what he does in Luke two. He shows up, they panic. He comforts them. He gives them a message. And now he gives them a sign. And the sign is what we all know. Well, I'm going to give you a sign. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Um, This, this sign just demonstrates the nature of our redeemer. After that announcement, can you just imagine with me for a moment, you're out there, you see the most glorious thing you'll ever behold in your life. Where are you going to go look for this baby? Where'd you go look? I mean, you're like, okay, he's got to be somewhere Awesome. I mean, I just saw the most crazy thing that a human mind could ever see. This baby, who's God very God, he's got to be like in the Taj Mahal. I mean, he has got to be, he is is the grandest one who's ever been born. Are you tracking with me? Like, that's what should be happening in your mind. When the Bible does these sharp left turns, you should be like, time out. That doesn't make sense. Why did God do that? Because we should be thinking they're going to go to the best palace in Bethlehem. To see where this Christ child is. And that's not what happens at all. Because the sign demonstrates the nature of the redeemer. This Messiah was born in a room with animals and died between two robbers. He was the king of kings who lived the most pathetic life you could ever imagine. And by pathetic, I mean truly pathetic. One that you and I would feel bad for. Imagine with me for a moment. Imagine with me, somebody sends, we support a missionary in Cambodia as a church. Let's say he sends us a letter asking for support because that's a reality in his his needs. And he shows us pictures of babies born in barns, lying in feeding troughs, wrapped in rags. And he says, would you please help us? Anybody's heart moved? Okay, I want to help because, I mean, that baby's going to die before they hit two days old. They're exposed to disease. It's disgusting. This is not a Hallmark card, folks. This isn't some pretty little squeaky clean stall. This is a vile spot where animals live, where they eat, and where they do all the nasty things animals do. And he says, you're going to find him there. And we're like, oh, isn't that so sweet? It should cause you to say, that's not right. Right. Like it's not right today. It wasn't right then. This was not normal in the first century. Babies weren't born in barns. Okay. They actually, they could take care of children. They would do the best they could do. But for our savior, remember Philippians two, he gave up the glory of being God. He took on the form of a slave that we might be redeemed. So, This is not insignificant. This is massively significant. This sign is that you're going to find a baby in the feeding troughs of an animal wrapped in rags. He emptied himself so that we might live. This Sign just screams the nature of our God. One who came low so that we might be brought high. And and then listen to what happens. So after the angel says, this baby will be in a manger. God will become man. (laughs) And suddenly there was with the angel, one angel, a multitude. This is actually the word for army. An army of heavenly beings, heavenly hosts, praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among or um, with those whom he is Please, too, we see the proclamation of exuberant worship. Do you know the angels exist to worship God? It's what made the rebellion of Satan so significant. He lived in the presence of the Almighty, and he actually thought for a moment he was greater than the Almighty. These angels live in the presence of God, and they delight in worshiping and adoring him. And they delight in redemption. Remember the angels have joy when a sinner repents? The angels long to look according to first Peter. They long to look on what we know See, the angels know the holiness of God. They know the, the majesty of God. You know what they don't know? They don't know the forgiveness of God. Do you realize that, that God was fair with Satan? If God's fair, we're all going to end up like that. Satan rebels. He's judged gone forever. Judge for eternity. God's not fair. They know the holiness of God and they they're amazed at the grace of God. They marvel at the mercy of God and redemption. And so this baby is born. He is laying in a manger and these angels come to worship him because they understand the magnitude of what's happening. They get it. They get who God is. They get who humanity is and they get what's happening in Bethlehem in that manger God becoming low that he might redeem mankind and they exalt God in an awesome way. They remember the glory of God already appeared. Well, they now say glory to God in the highest. They just scream back to God, the glory that he deserves. Do you realize that God is what we call intrinsically glory, glorious. You know what that means? Intrinsically glory, glorious means he doesn't need you to make him glorious. It's a part of who he is. So if you're a sports fan and you follow somebody, that person that you follow will become old and crippled and their glory will pass. Whoever you think is the greatest football player, the greatest basketball player, the greatest whatever in the world, they're going to get old just like all of us and their glory will go away because all of their fans stop giving them glory. Right? They're not intrinsically glorious. They're just glorious because we pay them $60 million to play a game. But that's going to end and their glory is gone. And then you're going to have debates over who was the best basketball player ever. Was it MJ? You know, and nobody really cares anymore. The glory of God is not like this. It is who he is. And whether or not you give him glory doesn't matter because he is glorious. Like I just put in this plug, according to Philippians two, even if you reject him now, one day you'll bow before him and you'll give him glory because he demands it. He doesn't just deserve it. He demands it. The kindness of grace is you have the privilege now of giving him glory. That's the kindness of grace. And so the, the angels get it and they peel with loud shouts, glory to God in the highest. They get it. This proclamation of exuberant worship. But then they say something that I believe is the heart of the passage. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the Zenith of the text. This is the, this is the high point of the mountaintop. This is where everything is going the entire time. It's rising to this apex. Everything since Genesis three has been going towards peace with God. And when we read this, we should again, step back and say, why would he say that? Well, because folks, there's not been peace with God. Peace with God has not been a reality. His own people have been running as hard as they can against him. There's no peace with God. And here the angels say, not just glory to God in the highest, but peace on earth. So to go back with what I started with, the most significant question in the world, how can I have peace with God? Have you thought about that question? How can I have peace with God? Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you're here because it's like, man, I, something's different about these people. I don't know what it is. Their lives aren't in the same turmoil my life's in. Or maybe, maybe it's actually their life is hard, but they have a calmness to them that I don't comprehend. I don't get it. Peace with God is only possible in this savior who is Christ the Lord. And so that's the proclamation. There is now peace with God. See, peace with God is only possible through good news of great joy. Are you following the logic of the passage? Good news of great joy produces what? Peace. You know, there's a lot of sad stories. If you're into reading human interest stories, which I am, there's a lot of sad stories of people who have all the world has to offer and are miserable. You've probably read them people that literally have more, I call it more money than brains. The people that you and I look at and you're like, you put a retractable roof on your house. Are you crazy? Or like you did what you have a gold plated Lamborghini in your living room. Like, why would you do that? Because you just have the money to burn and then you get close and you can read about their lives and they're just a wreck. They're miserable. Again, I'm not equating money with misery. Okay. I'm not doing that, but it, it happens. What's the problem? There's no peace with God. They're trying to find peace in everything else they can get. And it's never going to happen. And so they go from this toy to that toy, to that toy, to this trip, thinking maybe I'll get peace with God. Or even we today in our society, we just say, I want peace with myself. Which is a nice way of saying, you know, you've offended a holy God and you want peace with him. And you can't get it. And here there's a message of Peace. I think the world, the unbelieving world should look at the lives of God and say, there's something different about you. There's just like this ability to take all the trials and agony of life and you're just okay with it. You're not falling apart. You're not whatever is happening in their life because there's peace with God through the good news of great joy. It's interesting though, what he says, he he doesn't give us universal peace. Okay, we're not not waiting for a utopic society. He says, there's peace on earth among those with whom God, that's the he, with whom God is pleased. So here's the million dollar question. How do you get peace with that God? That's the question that Christmas answers. Christmas answers the question, how do I get peace with the God of the universe? The God that we started sinning against in Genesis 3, And the God that my life proves I run from all the time. How do I get peace with him? And, and and the Christmas story answers this. Interesting. If you look back at Isaiah nine, remember the prophecy of Christ. What was one of the names? And he shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, the everlasting father, the Prince of peace. This, isn't, this wasn't a global peace. This was a peace with God. And here the angels proclaim the same message. There is peace with God through Christ. And it is a peace that comes through grace and faith alone in the Messiah. It is a peace with those whom with God is pleased. Notice it doesn't say peace when you do your part. Peace if you do all the right things. Peace if you clean up your life. Peace if you go to church. Peace if you. He says peace when God is pleased with you. Last night we were talking about this with my boys before they went to bed, and I asked them, you know, one of those theolo- theologian dad questions. Boys, how do you have peace with God? And uh, Hudson looks at me and goes, I don't know. <laughs> you know, just very, <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea, Dad. That's a deep question. Let's go to bed. And um, and then Joel says. And he goes, is it through repentance and believing in Jesus? Yes, that's it. And if you're here this morning and that's not been your story, then you don't have peace with God. There is only one way to have peace with God. And it's coming to God and saying, this savior, this Christ, who is the Lord, I am going to turn from my ways and run after him. I'm going to stop living for myself, thinking I can achieve peace and other things. And I will turn to Christ alone and you can know peace with God. I would just plead with you this morning that if you're here and you're like, I have no clue what that looks like. I have never had peace with God. You could have peace with God today. You could turn to the savior and say, I'm done. And the one who brings peace, I want to live for him. I want to follow him. I want him to be my savior. So there is this extraordinary announcement to very ordinary people. But look at how the passage finishes. The angels leave, verse 15. They depart, they go to heaven. And the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem. Duh. (laughs) Yeah, let's go to Bethlehem, like right now. Let's go, let's run. They go with haste to Bethlehem to see this thing that's happened. God made it known to us. We want to go check it out. Here we just see verse 15 and 16, the immediacy of obedience. They ran hard. God gripped them. It was like, I'm done. I'm I'm leaving my sheep. I'm gone. I'm out of here. Ever have that moment in your life where God gripped your soul? And it was like, I'm done. I'm seeking you to the degree that people said, Hey, what are you doing? You're leaving your sheep. It's okay. They'll be fine. I got to go. I got to go obey what I've just seen and heard. And that's what 1 Corinthians four says. The God of this world blinds the minds of unbelievers from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. If you're a child of God today, there was a point in time where the gospel of the glory of Christ blew up in your heart and everything changed. You went from being happy in darkness to saying, Oh my goodness. I don't know. I don't even know who that was anymore. I am not the same person. If anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The the new has come. I'm not that same guy. I'm not that same girl. Like, wow, the glory of God showed up and I am brand new again. If that's not happened to you, if you don't look at your life and say, God did something and he transformed me, then do you know him? because when the disciple when the, when the shepherds heard and saw their response was immediate and wholehearted they went with haste after what they had heard and saw and then in verse 17 I, I love it they go they see Mary and Joseph and the baby and when they saw it they made known they immediately proclaimed it's interesting they didn't go and at least we don't see it in the text hold the baby let's chit chat with Mary and Joe a little bit. It's like, uh, uh-uh. no, we're going to go and we're going to tell you immediately is, is what the grammar communicates immediately with what we heard and saw. I mean, this good news of great joy cannot be contained. That's what's going on here. If you know good news of great joy, you're like, you're like a bottle that's been shaken up and the top can't stay on. It's just waiting to burst. It's waiting to explode. It's just like, you don't have to try. It just comes out. That's what's going on here. Hey, you've got to know what we saw. You've got to know what God has done. The thought that you would be anything else is foreign to the scriptures. When God radically changes a person, they want to proclaim good news. I mean, have you, Okay, there, of course, I'm sure there's nobody here, but, you know, people that love bad news, they just love to, oh, did you hear? You know, and we do, we make it all Christian with things like, hey, would you pray for so-and-so? And And then we tell them about it. There's, okay, that happens. But, you know, then there's the good news people. You just hear something so great. Like, I gotta tell you, and have you ever told a stranger good news and they just don't care? I mean, it's just like, they can care less. And you're like, oh, man, this just happened to me. And they're like, why are you... It was like my wife and I, we got engaged. I was in the bathroom at Starbucks and she's just like telling the barista all about the engagement that just happened. He didn't care. Like he just was like, yeah, whatever lady, you know, I'm just, here's your coffee. And he didn't ask for that information. She just, you know, told them all of what just happened. This good news of great joy just comes out. It's what blows out of your soul because you have been changed. And it's interesting when people heard it, how they responded. It says, and all who heard it. So we can conclude from this that there was more people there than just the shepherds and Mary and Joseph. We don't know who all was, but the reality is again, a baby being born in a outdoor stable with animals is not common. Okay. And you're in a society where people don't drive by at 50 miles an hour. They're walking everywhere and they're riding their animals by or they're bringing their animals by for a drink. And it's like, Oh my goodness, there's a baby laying in the feeding trough. Like there's people around and they come in and these shepherds just proclaim to whoever's there, what they've seen and heard. And there's some who wondered, this is kind of like the people that would just go, Oh, that is so interesting. You're crazy. You saw what I mean, come on, really? You want us to believe that angels talked to you, the night sky blew up, and like they screamed and said, Glory to God in the highest? Maybe there were some who wandered with an intrigue. Huh. Ah, that's interesting. I don't know. That just sounds, uh, mm, I got to think about that more. There was the wandering, and that's kind of what people do today. Maybe that's even where you're at this morning. You're wandering. Ah, man, this whole Jesus manger baby thing, virgin at giving birth. You know, Jesus coming to die. I don't know. You're wondering, but the response of Mary is distinctly contrasted. Some wondered, but Mary, but Mary, she treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. Some will wonder, but brothers and sisters, some will treasure Christ. Some will come to him and say, oh, I am done trying to obtain peace with God. I'm done living for myself. Oh, I'm going to treasure this savior who is Christ, the Lord. And Mary treasures Christ. And you might say, well, it was easy for her. Not really. Yeah, she was virgin. She knew she conceived being a virgin. She also knew that God had pretty much wrecked her life. Her husband almost left her. Um, everybody didn't believe her. So now she's going to be accused her entire existence of being something. She's not because she walked by faith. She didn't have to believe folks. She chose to believe the message. She treasured it up in her heart this morning. Would you treasure Christ? Would you stop treasuring everything else and say, I'm going to treasure the one who is intrinsically worthy of glory worthy of praise. I'm going to be done pursuing all the things that I treasure. Cause we could just take time this morning and spend hours on all the things we treasure. Cause we treasure a lot of things. And here we see the response to the savior is treasuring in her heart. And so they treasured it. They treasured him. And then the shepherds leave in verse 20. This is so fascinating. The shepherds leave and they return to normalcy. They don't go back to an angelically filled field. They don't live in this experience that continues the rest of their days. They go back to a normal everyday existence. Back to their field, back to their life, their ordinary life. But look at what changes. Earlier in this passage, we saw these exact same words, glorifying and praising God but it was coming from the angels. And now who's it coming from? These guys leave and it's like, we can't stop praising. We can't stop worshiping. We have heard the good news of great joy, which shall be to all people for unto you is born this day in the city of David is a savior. Who's Christ. We can't help but worship. We can't help but adore him. This isn't like, Oh, well on 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings, I turn on the worship button for 20 minutes and then I turn it off. Praise God. No, this is my life is lived in the ordinary moments of praising and glorifying God for all they had seen and heard. This is the evidence of a life transformed by the good news of great joy. Have you been transformed? If you've been transformed, guess what? You will glorify and praise him as a way of life. It might look different for you than it does for me, but it's gonna be a life of glorifying and praising. That's what it means to know Christ. This birth of Jesus described in Luke two, it didn't happen on December 25th. We have no idea when it happened and that doesn't matter. But this, this day that we celebrate the birth of Jesus, it was not just another significant day in global history. We're not just relativists who celebrate Christmas and Hanukkah and fill in the blank I'm not bashing other religious systems. I'm just saying we're not one among equals. We don't have, this isn't like, well, we just want to love everybody. So we do Christmas. They do Kwanzaa. And we celebrate the most significant day in the history of mankind. God became man to redeem mankind by the death on the cross. Amen. And so we celebrate the birth of our savior. This isn't a nostalgic story of pretty little manger scenes and angels hovering over a field. This is the grand theme of scripture. Peace with God. That's not possible because of sin is now possible in this person called the Christ child. This is where God has been going since the beginning of time. Mankind by our sin, we rebel and we run. And God comes to us and he says, I'm going to send you a savior. His name is Jesus. Christ the Lord. And so if you know Christ today, this should be a time of year that you just explode with joy in the savior. Even though there's heartache surrounding holidays, loved ones have passed away. Relationships are broken. Family gatherings aren't all fun and games. We can sit there in the quietness of our heart and say, oh, I have peace with God through Jesus Christ. My Lord, I can rejoice. And if you're here this morning and you're just seeking, you don't know him. What I would just beg you once again, run to him. This could be the Christmas that you go from darkness to light. You go from just walking in blindness. You've wondered about religion. You've wondered about this Jesus. But now you can come to the Prince of Peace. The one who can actually make peace with God a reality. Would you turn to him? Oh, would we have a Merry Christmas. One that is merry because of Luke 2, right? One that is not just we eat a lot of food. And open fun gifts. But one that we read this and we say. Praise God. Praise God that a savior has come. Who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray together. Father. Your word is good. Thank you Lord for this morning. Thank you for opening your scriptures with us today. By the power of your spirit. Thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for sending a savior for people like us. Oh Lord, we are not wise. We are not noble. We are not good. We are, are simply broken people, hostile to God. And you have brought peace and we praise your name. And in Christ's name, amen.